Thanks very much, Jean. Um, uh, it's great to be here. I'm glad that you all made it to, to, in such a um, typical Sydney day. Um, we're very lucky to have Barbara here. I think she's been in Sydney now. How many days now, Barbara? About a week. About a week. And so she's sampled the real Sydney before um, today, so that's a very good thing. Um, I thought one of the things we might do is just to you know, find out what are you doing here in Australia now? Well, I'm here um, through the uh, generosity of Alexi Glass and Gertrude in Melbourne and uh, Jean Sherman here, of course, in Sydney. It was originally going to be a week, a month for me to just come out, do some research and do some of my own writing. I'm in the process of organizing a sound exhibition. So as I've been here, I've been meeting with artists who you know, work particularly with that. Like yesterday, I met with Joyce Hinterding and her partner, David. Yeah. So that's the ostensible reason. And of course, it's to see some old friends who are here as well. Barbara's also on holidays. This is what she does in her holidays. <laughs> and I have to say, that's uh, the kind of context that I've often met Barbara when she's out researching the field, um, but she tends to be on holidays at, yeah. the, at the same time. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the first time you came to Australia, because I think that might give us a bit of a lead into some of the work you've been doing. Um, I joke and I say I came as a baby. Um, I worked on a show that some of you might have seen called Some Recent American Art in the 70s. I was the junior, junior, junior assistant to Jennifer Licht, and it was a show that had Paint, uh, painting sculpture by people like Bob Morris, Richard Serra, uh, yeah. Linda Benglis. And with Jenny, I selected the video. And at the time that show went on the road, MoMA got a grant from the NEA, National Endowment for the Arts, to buy the first equipment. And the director, Dick Oldenburg, said, Barbara, run with this hot potato. Yeah. <laughs> and I did. So that would have been around 1970. 72, 73. I had worked in the print department with artist books, so to me, the cheap, inexpensive, $2 Ed Rocher book, um, you know, self-published, was very parallel to what was happening with video. The porta pack put the camera in the hands of artists with the same ease, although not the same weight, as a paintbrush. Mom is a pretty interesting place, but at that time um, there wasn't a department which could look after the kind of work that you were then starting to look at. So tell us a little bit about how that came about. Well, there I was hanging on to the hot potato up in the air, and I did go out on a limb and worked with video <laughs> within the film department, within the print department, but then yeah. it... Gradually, the umbrella then was the Department of Film. We didn't call it anything but the Department of Film. It was two moving images. There was a tiny uh, gallery that I was programming. I started a lecture series called Video Viewpoints, and that was where I invited artists to come in, show their work, and talk about it. And I think Peter and you both, Peter Callis, and the yeah. audience have been part of that. But it launched with um, Stena Vasulka, artist who was a pioneer in the um, late 60s in New York, who with her husband co-founded The Kitchen. So I was very interested in how artists came from maybe a different medium than video. They approached from a discipline, could have been Richard Serra, having maybe gotten himself into a corner with a sculpture and he needed to sort of have a little bit of freedom. And I think the video allowed him that. Somebody like Joan Jonas was doing performance, 
but was around the minimalists. It was Michael Snow who told her, go see Jack Smith. And it was kind of that opening for her was what allowed her to then start to work with the video camera and do very performative works where she worked with a live image, seeing herself. Yeah, yeah. So there's, I mean, we know a lot about that relationship between sculpture and performance and the rise of, of video. Um, and the, the New York scene at the time then was, you know, a hotbed of activity, but a lot of it wasn't necessarily coming out of galleries or going into museums. So it's um, odd that a, a museum of the, the stature of the Museum of Modern Art would start to embrace that. Well, it embraced it in a very low-budget way, the right. same way that here there were alternative spaces. Um, you know, you could have a low budget and do quite a lot of things. So, so like 300 bucks, you could buy a, a recording machine. Well, maybe a little more than that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, I remember doing early shows where it was three-quarter inch. We graduated from the port pack with open reel, but you had three-quarter inch cassettes and we would have our players jerry-rigged to then automatically rewind once they came to the end. So something jammed, I figured out how to go into the deck and get it unclogged, and one day an artist, Dan Sandine, came in from Chicago and he had a little beanie on with a whirly gig. <laughs> he was helping me and our guards came up and they said, Barbara, are you okay? <laughs> and he was helping me, you know. You know, so, yeah, so, you know, like it was hands-on. I learned the AV, and then, of course, equipment became a little more sophisticated and more sophisticated, so. Yeah, but, um, but a place like the kitchen really is quite different to, um, you know, the, the, the white walls of the museums. How were people working with video at that time, and what was of interest to you about all of that? It was fascinating because of that energy, the experimentation, the exploration, that almost nothing was written about it. And the writing was done by artists themselves. Some of you read um, Radical Software, yeah. or um, there were various little publications, and there were things like the video TP, Shirley Clark had, the filmmaker had on the top of the Chelsea Hotel a little workshop. Some of you knew Michael Goldberg, a Canadian who was very active in Vancouver and was a great networker. So this is the time of mail art. We didn't have internet. We didn't even have faxes. We had to send letters. Can you imagine <laughs> you had to wait? <laughs> you know, so I was talking with some of your colleagues in the audience about the first time I went to Japan, which was in the kind of the mid-70s. So I wrote letters. I asked Namjoon Paik, who should I see in Tokyo? And I, I had a notebook, you know, full of information. And um, I get to Narita Airport, I call Fujiko Nakaya to say I'm on my way. And of course I leave the notebook on the top of the phone box in the airport. Oh my God. So she called the airport right away and it was delivered. It was like, this is Japan, you could leave your wallet on the subway and you'd get it, you know, so. But, but, like, I met in one gulp um, at a dinner all of the people making video in Tokyo at that point. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happened, we were talking before, uh, I went to China in the mid-90s, and I had learned from colleagues in Europe that a lot was happening in China with media. And in the U.S., because of travel restrictions, my colleagues weren't going. And I was an anomaly in MoMA. 
I would go to Europe, my colleagues would look at Europe and that, you know, development of activity, and I was always looking to Asia. Yeah. So I did my first forays into Japan and went many times, had a sabbatical and learned Japanese because I realized language is so integral to the process that you have to be able to communicate and really understand where people are coming from. Uh, I went to China and I've discovered the 35 people working with media. You had Qu Zhe today. I'd met him in the mid 90s mm -hmm. and he was truly just an art student. He had done his calligraphy, but he was also experimenting with videos. So that kind of fluidity of working across mediums was yeah. of great interest. I mean, one of the great things about a lot of your work is that you've been doing it in public as a curator, which is, which is interesting, and also utilizing the new media itself to um, uh, perform that. So your stir-fry project was um, probably of interest to many people in the audience if they've not seen it. It's still up on the web, isn't it? Yeah, you can Google this. It's called stir-fry. Just go to my name, Barbara London, stir-fry, and it'll come up. So I had from MoMA a small travel grant once I figured there was a lot of work there in China that yeah. I should know about. So I got the travel grant from our international council John Caldor, Penelope Seidler, various Australians are members, and decided to, only two weeks before that I wanted to do, in quote, a kind of blog. It was pre-blogs. Yeah, blogs didn't exist back then. So I called it my curatorial dispatches because I thought I didn't want that information just to go into a file folder, which because for usually MoMA exhibitions take at least two years to develop and get off the ground. So I thought, here's primary reference material that I wanted to share with other people. So two weeks before, I made sure I had a little extra money to take my husband, who had been a documentary filmmaker. So we had a little backpack, and, and it was a laptop, a camera, audio recorder. And I had no idea. I had um, pro bono someone design the website from the Holiday Inn's business center. We sent the text image at night through dial-up, took a while. Yeah, and it must have been quite a challenge at that time. It was a real challenge. Internet. So there were technological problems, but um, what about the way in which you scope out the work? Because I know you're very keen to um, you know, find out the, the context in which work is being made, then to meet people and to engage in a dialogue with them, to not necessarily fly in and fly out. So, so I like to take time, like I'm here a month, uh, so when I went to Japan the first time, I understand clicks, clacks, how there are, you know, little pyramids. So I went under my own umbrella, under no one's aegis. I was on my own and would connect. And I would, only if somebody asked me would I say who I'd just seen, you know, but it was none of their business because yeah. maybe they were enemies. Or, but wait a minute, then wouldn't we see it on... Yeah, but on the, on the stir-fry they would, but the first show they wouldn't have. Okay, okay. But on stir-fry... Um, so right. stir-fry, that's the, that's the China project really, isn't it? And I was on my own doing that, but people would call and make a connection for me. and um, Yeah. And then some of the, the work in Japan led to the um, .jp project? 
Well, I was curious. I did the Chinese research, and out of that, we did acquire. We, from afar, I had done a kind of documentary Chinese show, and a lot of that work went into the collection. So, some of you might know Wu Wang Wang, wonderful, wonderful documentarian, who's a teacher and a great, great um, supporter of a lot of younger artists. Like, so we acquired a lot of that work. Then when I went for stir fry, I met Jean-Pei Lee, and we got his piece called Eating. And that's on the website. It's beautiful work where it's three stacked monitors, and it's almost like a sentence. When you learn a language, you parse a sentence. So it's like a subject-object verb about what eating is. So we had that on as a show at the same time as Pollock. And the entrances for both shows were right next to each other. So I joked, OK, Haley, you and Pollock, <laughs> <laughs> two kings, or two, uh, you know. I won't ask you who was more popular. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> And um, so, so in a sense, you're exploring these places where people may not know so much about, both conceptually but also geographically around the world. Um, Using the new technology itself a, a, a lot, what, what do you think of the whole new technology thing, and how does how does that fit in? I know it's I mean it's a, a, a difficult thing to um, be working in an institution like MoMA, which in a sense is quite radical in the way in which it collects for the museum, but then it has these different curatorial departments. But how do you navigate all of those different forms that appear so rapidly now? Well, it's interesting. I always, think, I always joke that every moment we're alive, it's amazing. You know, we, there are amazing changes. When I started at MoMA, Kenison McShine, an incredible curator who has retired, yeah. said to me, you're going to know your generation the best, which means I know my culture, I know my rock music, I know that. But I work with younger assistants, or I teach for that reason, to know what young artists are thinking about. Technology is always changing. We're going to have flavor of the month. We're going to have, you know, like what everybody is moving towards. So at a place like MoMA, especially now, we're working a lot across discipline. We mm. have a contemporary working group where the contemporary from all the different departments meet every week, every other week, and talk about shows we've seen, talk about exhibitions we'd like to see at MoMA, thematic, not geographic. Because to us, it's very important that work be brought in not for its nationhood, but for um, what the ideas and content are. Yep. So of course, I've never liked the term new media. And that's an industry term. So yep. we're always moving through technologies and what the industry is trying to get us to buy. Of course, we're always wanting not only the new artwork, but they want us to have the latest gizmo. And then artists um, work with low-tech, some of them, for a political reason, or you know, high-tech. Yeah. And I think now we're at an interesting moment where you can use what the Xbox and do very, very, very. This is a box that's a gaming box for you can. I've heard of that. People in the audience probably have too. <laughs> so that you know, like I saw Joyce Sinterding yesterday, and um, she was talking about this new work that she used. This is a hundred and eighty dollar little device that you can hack, 
and can do very, very, very sophisticated interactive work with. So how do you collect work like that when, because this is one of the big questions of our time, especially you know, if you start with video, video art, um, even video that was recorded and collected in the 70s now, very hard to um, play it back and you, know, you could take that trajectory through all of the different forms. What's Mama's thinking on all of that at the moment? And well, your thinking as well. Yeah, we've thought all along the way, no matter what we acquire, it's a big responsibility, whether it costs $250 or Ed Rocher's $2 artist book, you know, or... I don't think they're $2 anymore. No, I think <laughs> they're like 5000 if you're able to get one. So, if we are going to acquire work, we are making a commitment. And I always say, we're going to go to the mat like a wrestler, you know, that we are taking responsibility for this. So. I'm very fortunate to be in an institution like the one I'm in because over the years, not only have we developed cataloging procedures, loan forms that are very specific to this kind of work, of course, acquisition forms. When we acquire a work, usually we do an artist interview yeah. and really discuss what the aesthetics are because the technology inevitably is going to change. So. When the artist and I are no longer around, then how are we going to make decisions? And of course, ideal would be that we actually videotape that interview, which then is another preservation issue, because you're going to want the future people, holders, curators, to see what that artist was like. Yeah. Because then you can make your decisions even more fully, but we can't always do that. So it's through the paper documents that we get it down. We acquired, say, the work of Rafael Lozano Hammer, who lives in Montreal, was born in Mexico, whatever. But Rafael works with off-the-shelf software. He does very sophisticated work programming. His manual for this piece that's in an edition of like three is this thick. I read it, our, our conservator read it, and we still had like four questions. And he said, nobody ever has acquired his work and ask questions, mm. <laughs> you know, because we really read it like thoroughly. So we go into detail. So we actually, his is, is um, what do you call it? Um, public domain software, what do you call it? Um, yeah, open source. Open source, yeah. So others like John Simon, we've bought from, and I, we wanted the code. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I mean, one of the interesting things about that approach is that you collect the work and, and all of the documentation and the interviews and so on, but sometimes it seems that you, you start with the ephemera almost. Or you, so MoMA has a, a collection of a whole bunch of photographs and, you know... All kinds of things. Yeah. So, so when I started, there were no books. There were just these maybe artists' magazines, or maybe Studio International in the late 60s did one article on a handful of um, artists who had worked with video. But you know, I had that, I had the, all of the bios, all of the artist statements. So my interns would be responsible for putting it into the file folders. Of course, gradually that became a huge resource, which is now in the library. So I had to have. Another intern two years ago go through and do the cross 
Which kind of linking yeah. so that it's now in the library and very accessible to scholars. So, so the, the rare the books, we were talking before about China with um, John and um, so we were talking about um, these are small edition books, you know, maybe the artist self-published in China, but only a handful came out, so we, you know, grab them and you you try to take care of those too. Yeah, yeah. Um, because in a sense, having that material um, at your disposal can also help you um, curate new shows, right? So you're one of the things that's interesting about the work that you've been doing is that it's not just about finding the, you know, the latest and the, the most interesting work from around the world and trying to create a context for it, collecting it or showing it, engaging with it, but in a sense you're also um, engaging in the making of that history and then the representation of that history. So um, one particular show that I'm interested in, and I know people in the audience might be as well, is your Looking at Music project, which in a sense, from my understanding, started in that way. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how the first uh, Looking at Music show was conceived and how did that happen? I've always been interested in the interdisciplinarity of artist practice, and many artists like Namjoon Paik was a pianist, was actually a quite good one. Yeah. Bill Viola played the drums in a high school band. Um, I think everyone did, but... Um... <laughs> yeah, like, I, yeah, I think you're right. So, so a lot of artists have moved back and forth. So I was very interested in doing a show that would look at that and decided that if I were to do one, I would do it on New York. I lived it. I'm from New York. If I were to take on the world, it would be a very different show and it would take me forever. So I started in the 60s, the first show, with John Cage, Yoko Ono, Michael Snow. Um, I got to know the residents, this crazy, wonderful music group from the Bay Area. And they not gave the residents of the MoMA, no. No, <laughs> there are no a residents. music group that really, like Laurie Anderson, whom I know and have done work with, and she was in that first show, was the artists and what the cross influences were. Like Steve Reich, I had his music piece called Come Out, where it was a very repetitive, there had been a black kid molested by the police at, um, there was an altercation. And basically, Steve, to raise money for this kid, because he had been grabbed and the bruise was coming out, did this sound piece, which was come out, come out, and it kept on recurring. Yeah. Nauman, Bruce Nauman was very influenced by Steve at that moment in the late 60s. So I put Nauman's lip sync, which is on view now at um, uh, the Art Gallery in New South Wales, mm -hmm. I think, uh, where you see Nauman upside down, yeah. trying to repeat what he just heard himself say. So I put those together. And so that was the first. Yeah. And what do you think the relationships are between those different scenes? And how do you think that's changed what contemporary art became? I think it's more normal, or more, <laughs> more, not normal, but the more. art world was very small then. Yeah. And artists would meet in bars, or you'd meet them in the neighborhood. Like, you know, Michael Snow lived next, around the corner from Philip Glass, and, you know, so it was like, you just that happened. Now artists live very far apart because real estate is so high, expensive. 
So now, of course, we meet at conferences or at shows, and it's that face meet that's very important. But it's not as much fun as meeting down in Soho. In, as over in a bar, in, in no. A, <laughs> Drinking late at night. Um, yeah, so access. So, so I've done three of those shows. I did the 60s. I did the 70s. 70s was quite interesting, that period in New York, if any of you were there at that time. You know, we had Max's Kansas City, the Mud Club, all these, you know, clubs CBGBs. where there were a lot of performances going on. And you had, actually, I was interested in what was happening uptown in the Bronx, in Harlem, with the music, and what those musicians were seeing, doing, and mm -hmm. where, like, they met the Beastie Boys, they became very tight. Um, a number of the hip-hop artists. Uh, so I, in that show, I was very interested in crossovers. And one of the fun things I had was Bob Gruen, who's a well-known rock photographer, was in all those clubs, took all those photographs. His work was on the cover of all kinds of magazines. So he did for me a wall that would be like the bedroom of a kid's, yeah. a kid's bedroom, where you just, you could do your treasure hunt and you'd see the whole history of the 70s through Bob Gruen's photos. Plus, next to it, I had Patti Smith performing in, um, at CBGB's. Patti, as she was, if you've read the beautiful autobiography, Patti emerging as Patti Smith. She wasn't quite Patti Smith yet, but so that was great fun. And then I had Richard Hell and his poetry. And um, yeah. so I could go to these people and say, uh, we're missing this in the MoMA library. Yeah, so the MoMA, so <laughs> this is the part that I kind of want to get straight. So the MoMA library already had Richard Hell's stuff. Yeah, some of it, some. But, right, so. And I could go to Richard. Some of these people are gnarly, you know, they're, but, you know, you approach them in the right way and, you know, they'll give you the extra copy or the record. And it was very funny. People come out of the woodwork. So we have a beautiful self-portrait of Patti Smith, Patti Smith self-portrait um, from 71. Gorgeous picture Patty did, and she's holding a Polaroid portrait of herself. She did a portrait of Robert, it's a beautiful drawing. And I thought, okay, I want to put Robert in there, but we didn't have the right photo in our collection. So I bought Horses, the album, which has Robert's beautiful portrait of her. No, I didn't buy it, I borrowed it. It was supposed to be a collection show, but they allowed me to have a few loans, including Horses. So the show closed, a box com package comes in the mail. It turns out there's a guy who was on the board of the Warhol Museum who loved my show, who then started giving me, giving Mama horses and um, everything you could imagine, these beautifully designed LPs. And then now, of course, I've met him, had lunch with him, and you know, he's, he keeps giving stuff. He keeps, you know. Yeah, so I mean, all of that ephemera, in a sense, and all of that work that, in many ways, is sort of overlooked by many museums, becomes the, the focus of that show in particular. Well, um, it sort of fills in. Like, um, I think what we all, as art historians or as curators, want to do is really make those connections, because this painter or this video maker doesn't exist in isolation. It's yeah. this combination you know, um, exchange of ideas. And it's those links that I think we have to uh, kind of... To try and un uncover yeah. in many ways. And um, so the third, the third in the series of the shows? Third was the most uh, jazzy looking. My MoMA designer 
really got into it with me. We, we really had fun together. I started with Kraftwerk, an album, and the influence that it had on the hip-hop guys. Africa Lombada always talks about Kraftwerk and the importance. And then I, I go like this because it's the gallery. And then I had um, like the minimalist uh, musicians. Um, and Christian Markley lent his beautiful records that he had sawed with a jeweler's saw and glued together. So he would perform at the kitchen and other places. He never learned music. He would perform with a record player and his hacked together record, and he would do like what the uh, uh, DJs were doing, but he would have just one record. Yeah, and he'd play it in a very odd way. Uh, yeah, as like, well. it was a, like it was a guitar. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. And uh, who else was in that particular show? I had a great fun with this show because I, because of the previous gift of Bob Gruen, I was able to go to Laura Levine, another photographer. She gave me the most beautiful photo of Madonna before she emerged. She's got dark hair, and she's Madonna, who was like performing in the baths, you know, in the Chelsea, uh, the um, Ansonia Hotel. So you had a very hairy-looking Madonna, <laughs> and I put her with. They were all very happy. I put her with um, Martha Rossler. We had a print that nobody had ever looked at in the Moment Collection that had a record. So I had that digitized, and you could hear Martha. Uh, her record, which had um, Chilean marching band for a political event, you know. And then I had um, Karen Finley's record. And I had long talk with Karen because it's a very ribald song. <laughs> and she, you know, I made sure Glenn Lowry, our director, knew that the song was racy and whatever. We had no problem. I think everybody now is so used to um, more edgy, you know, overt. Yeah, stuff. Yeah. But it went on to La Tigra, the, the group that emerged mm -hmm. out of Portland, um, that were in New York. I had their zines. I had a beautiful, two beautiful interactive CD-ROMs that we have in the collection. One of the residents called The Freak Show. Beautiful, beautiful work. Graphics are extraordinary. And Laurie Anderson's Puppet Motel. Yeah, the, yeah, both Hallmark works at the time. So, um, will there, is there a catalogue in, in the works, or are you thinking of... I want to do one. I don't have one. Maybe a book. Yeah, or, a book. It's more like a... Or maybe something on the web. Well, then this gets us to another issue, rights. Yeah. So, right. I did a show called Music Video, the Industry and Its Fringes in 1985, knowing that the record industry does not take care of its material. Yeah. It was right after MoMA did its expansion in 84, mm -hmm. and I thought, here's an area where short form has really been going on for quite a while. The Beatles did their short pieces like uh, Penny Lane, and, and luckily I knew the Beatles' lawyer and got the Beatles' work in, got Bowie in, got, of course, David Byrne and Laurie, got the hip-hop guys, got a lot of work. In. So that's all in the MoMA collection, archival copies. But now the record industry has gone through such upheavals that, you know, this company buys that one, buys that one, yeah. or this one. So now almost every time we want to show those materials, except for the independent artists who control all of it, um, we have to get the rights from the record company. And it is. So I had a Sony blocking my assistant on the rights of one. Finally, I called the woman and I said, hey, Akio Morita was a trustee, gave us blah, blah, you know, equipment, and 
he was your founder and important for us, so why are you charging us money? And they dropped it. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, you know, like, sometimes you have to, like... So ne negotiating those rights to make all of that work available on the web... Is, like, going to be almost yeah. impossible. Although most of that's already on YouTube anyway, isn't it? Um, <laughs> as it turns out. <laughs> but I had a funny thing. After that, um, I got a call. Somebody said, hi, I work for David Bowie. I said, great. They said, did you get that video re you requested back in 85? Because I just found a letter in the archive. I said, sure. I said, I've actually reprised it. I said, do you want the press release? Yeah. I said, and I didn't want to let her go. I said, OK. Do you think he, Mr. Bowie, we respect him, would give us all his music videos? She said, I'll ask him. And he did. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, that's kind of what you want. So, um, I mean, working working with those sorts of popular forms um, of of art, but um, also at the, the cutting edge of of display and, and technology and so on. I just wanted to circle back to the question of of the web and how um, you've negotiated that, because in a sense, MoMA again was um, one of the first museums that thought about the web a little bit differently, not as a, as a marketing kind of front door, but as a place um, to be doing projects. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of those projects, like, like for instance, the, um, uh, the work with Tony Osler. Well, um, indeed, I really wanted to do some commissions. And we had done a screensaver with the group General Idea. So, you know, sometimes these marriages between a technician and an artist don't work. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they're perfect. Tony had an idea that was really hard, and it was not a marriage made in heaven. But when we did one with Tony, we did one with Alan McCollum, we did one with somebody else, I forget. But the, we went in with the understanding that we would do our very best to keep it alive and active for as long as we could, but there was no guarantee. Yeah. So with Tony, it, we kind of limped to get it up. We limped to keep it up, and then I think it kind of... But he ultimately took that material and turned it into an installation, and that's fine. Yeah. Because it's a subject, with a subject he was deeply, deeply engaged with. So, but I think that's what we kind of talked about a little bit. You can fail. You can... As long as you're alive and open and keep trying, you know, you have to have the space to, okay, that one didn't work, moving on. Yeah, well, speaking of being alive and open and to keep trying, I just wanted to um, finish up before we open up to the audience for some questions. Um, with your uh, very funnily titled Internet project, which is in Russia, exploring Russia yes. in the same way that you've explored uh, Japan and, and China. Um, tell us a little bit about how that came about. And that was great fun um, because, again, it was Russia, Ukraine, and I thought because the Soros centers had been sent, uh, set up in many in remote Europe. places. So we did the usual. We met amazing people in St. Petersburg and Moscow. So the same sort of methodology as in China and yeah. Japan, so going to Kiev. And then I knew I wanted to go to Novosibirsk. Novosibirsk is in the middle of Siberia. And we flew. We had one contact. We arrived, and I met these artists. And they looked at me, and they said, you know, no Russian curator has ever come to see us. <laughs> Thank God it was I summer. Why. It was summer. <laughs> and 
they didn't have a lot of money, but they were so lovely. And I'm in the studio, and they went out and they bought a loaf of dark bread and a cucumber, and that was what they could afford. And it was like, it was just beautiful, you know, and they had done really beautiful work. So I felt, you know, yes, and I didn't, a year or two after, I went to Sakhalin, which I don't think anybody's ever gone to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to say I have not been to Sakhalin. <laughs> and um, so as a result of that, so we have the project and people can check that out online. Yes, definitely. Um, How did, what sort of works have come into the collection and um, what exhibition outcomes? There were a few works that came into the collection. I can't say, I think more like, I, I in, the, in 75 started this lecture series called Video Viewpoints. Yeah. So some of them came through and talked and showed their work. That always to me is very important to have to give the public, and MoMA has a vast public, so people come for very particular things, to have that opportunity for people to come and have somebody from, like, Moscow then discuss their work, you know, which isn't normal. I mean, not, not, it's not common, not normal, yeah. not common. And the Video Viewpoint series still going? Well, what happened is, and this is a good question, it's about the technology. There's video, video, now we call it media. Then there's film. That, so, so we your your department, curatorial department now is media and, and performance, performance art. So, art yeah. so even before the department was split, we had two programs, Video Viewpoints and Cineprobe, and they were very parallel. And they were really two different worlds at the at yeah. least at but the beginning. But within the same film, it was called film, wasn't it? Yeah, in the department. But then yeah. ultimately we changed it to Modern Mondays. Modern, modern, modern Mondays. Modern every, mod every Monday at MoMA, you're going to see something maybe for the screen, maybe for installation, maybe for interactivity. Yeah. And it will be your opportunity at MoMA for free to come into our theater at 6.30, whatever, and hear an artist talk about their work and show it. And show it, yeah. And you can ask questions. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it's been a great series. But maybe it, uh, that should we I'll open up. So. I think Jean's going to convene the discussion. If you don't have a uh, Barbara London in our major institutions, if the complexity of new media, you, know, you get a good Frank Stella painting, you put it on more, or Fred Wickham, you put it on more, is the complexity of new media at a disadvantage for its definition going into the future if you don't have such a good person yourself? But I think um, just going around and meeting the curatorial here and in Melbourne. I think there are people, and there's a new generation coming up, you know, and I think that's going to, um, you know, have a, I think wonderful things are going to happen. I think already you've got like a Judy Anir who studied rock music in the 80s or, you know, was close to that and understands and, you know, so you've got, you know, some, some of that or, other spaces, um, yeah. Generations are going to happen one way or another because yes. there are yeah. people who have grown up with this. Yeah. Um, who Along those lines, uh, could you say something about the strategies for the future digitization from uh, analog to I can repeat if you want. So, yeah, Peter's just asking about the strategy for digitizing work from analog to digital. How's that all going? Well, this is um, something you have to really think long and hard about, both as artist and then as institution. And that gets us into 
their, their work bought, acquired in the 70s was what you called unlimited edition, which I know you know very well about. So when MoMA or, Mo, or an institution like mine would buy for $250, then it yeah. went up to 1200 you were buying, in quote, an archival copy and the rights to that material for, as, for its life. For its life. And if that piece of videotape right. failed, you had to reacquire. So what we've done is we slowly now, only in the last year and a half, are going back to artists to get permission to digitize, understanding that we have to renegotiate. So we try, of course, not to pay, <laughs> you know, but we do, we will, we do, you know, we have to do, because there are incredible distributors like, you know, Electronic Arts Intermix and Vtape, and those, yeah, those distributors of, don't yeah. own the work, as you know, they represent the artists to distribute. Then you've got the Vito Acconci, who also put it out as an unlimited, but now some of these artists are going back and trying to limit the addition. Mm -hmm. So what happened to the distinction between the, the distinction between that used to be between life of tape copies and archival masters? How do you deal with that, with the changes to the, the newer types of media that have come since then? Well, we try now with the renegotiation to, and you know, we're digitizing and it goes into the digital file, and I would have to, you know, go back to my notes to tell you what the software is. But that it's like, like I said at the very beginning, you know, going to the mat trying to maintain and preserve these works. So we have a fil film department with over fifteen thousand film titles, and you never have all the the money to do all the preservation. But you're trying with the storage to keep them status quo as long as you can, and um, so. I think Barbara had a question just over here. Um, yeah, exactly. And there's a mic there, Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's always interesting to have someone come out who, who really, you know, in some ways defines the department that they're, they're in. Um, so thank you. Um, but I'm, I'm interested, uh, especially as you sort of ended with uh, saying that the, the film department and the, and the media have kind of separated out. How do you feel now about the the logic or the illogic of having performance and media together in, in a department at the museum. Particularly, you know, so much of the dialogue today has been about the reproducibility and the problems of that within the media aspect of your department. So how do you, how do you feel about those two things? Well, I don't think it's together. worked out. <laughs> <laughs> For anyone? And I think um, people approach it in different ways, you know, Tino Segal's method is his method where nothing is written and you sell it and there's no contract. It's a verbal contract. Carolee Schneemann did her performances early on and they're not repeated. Carolee now is in her, I don't know, she's 70, I can't remember. So she's definitely not going to perform those pieces. And she, she and Joan Jonas do not want their work to be performed. You know, it was there are photographs? They, Joan, you know, I could go on and on about Joan and her approach, but you know, she would do a performance, work it up, keep doing it. Then she would kind of lock it down as an installation which had the elements from the performance. Mm -hmm. So for Joan, that was her way. 
and is her way. Other people, you know, Marina had, you know, young people perform, and they were different people, and they, instead of doing it all day, they performed for 15 minutes, and that's very different. Yeah. Alexi? Yeah. I know it's very early days in your research into the project that you're kind of looking at on sound, but with the models for this is from performance and media. How are you thinking about sound and the current kind of methodologies that you've been exploring for this upcoming show? So I started this sound research out of the looking at music. Of course, I've been following Alvin Lussier and all of these people for a long time. So I started thinking I would do a history show, and then I realized that's just enormous, and the space I have is too small. Then I started to think I'll do it just the last 10 years. Then I've actually, being here and looking at your book and stuff, I thought I want to do installations. The works are not going to be headphones, but maybe I'll have a small section that will have more of a history through work that's distributed on CD or whatever. And maybe I'd have one installation artist who goes back to the 70s, so that there might be one grounding, you know, because you probably, you well know, there's a lot of field recordings, so this one individual um, did work in the 70s and, you know, had, like, political objectives through ecology, environment, whatever, so there might be that, and then, but of course, I talked with Caleb Kelly the other day, and you can take, I could take the democratic approach and have the noise all over the place, but I'm going to take the other approach where these will be rooms. But I don't want it to be so closed off, you know, little pigeon, little, little um, what do you call pigeon holes. I want to ask a question, but I'll, I'll save it if someone else wants to ask one first. Um, my question is, you know, there's this show that, um, Hans Ulrich Obrist and um, who was the second curator, Andrew? The, the, it's 11 Grooms, I think it's called. Who was it? Klaus Wiesenberg. Oh, Klaus Wiesenberg, yeah. That did, you know, the 11 Grooms, and it's going to be coming in a form to Australia. Eventually you'll hear about it. And each room is a, it's a performance uh, uh, exhibition. And, uh, you know, you wonder, I mean, in... I don't know enough about the show, but if you can, perhaps the first question to ask is, are the original performers performing? And if they're not, isn't so much lost when another performance, when another performer performs, or is it like the theatre where you have an Ibsen play and thousands of different people have performed? So what's the answer to the first? Are they the original people or not? Or in some cases, yes. I'm not, I, I'm not sure, because it might be William Forsyth, you know, dancers, because he's been doing a lot of performance, so it could be William Forsyth's performers, yeah. or it could be Tino Segal trained, you know, performers yeah, in that one that's room. that's right, so it, it varies. But is it like, can anybody do, I know it varies, but generally speaking, if Ibsen writes a play, any good actor can perform it. Is this... It's part of the big debate now, isn't it? It's part, yeah, it is. It's part. It is indeed part of the debate. It is part of and the debate. And a lot of those debates were staged around the, the um, Marina Abramovich show in um, MoMA last year. So we class had over a couple of years 
a series of workshops that were by invitation only. So you had around the table very key performance, artists who did performance. Mm -hmm. So I'll never forget one where there was Tina Segal, Joan Jonas, Barbara Smith from San Francisco, and uh, um, Lorraine O'Grady, and you know, and these were very tough people, and they had very different views. And I'll never forget Joan Jonas looking at Marina and saying, I have a different approach. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, like, yeah. Guys, at one last question, it's for, and then you can socialize and uh, speak to God um, informally and to us. So, who wants to ask the last, perhaps not so technical, but overarching kind of question? <laughs> Any question you like, I'm not going to be restricted. I'll just venture because I was kind of taken by that uh, comment of yours where you said uh, the sort of works you're looking at are, are meant to be, um, well, there's a sense of universality, you didn't use that word rather than, rather than a sort of parochialism or um, maybe you could just talk to that. Wait, I, I you know, that's, that sense when you talk about getting collecting works that, that have a, a language which, I mean, I, I probably, as I'm asking the question, it becomes obvious, but it, I wouldn't mind hearing it expanded. You talk about collecting works that have a language beyond the parochial. Well, yeah, it's a, looking for universality, you know, that it could be by someone from any place. Um, that it's not so personal specific or, you know, that it's country specific, country specific, nation, yes. you know. Um. Yet at times, of course, you know, you go to places as you have gone to these remote places in Russia and, uh, you know, you've got things yeah. that are happening well, then, there which... But then that's um, my struggle as someone airlifted in, you know, that knowing that I'm not part of that Novosibirsk culture, but I'll work very hard to think of what their context is, what I've seen, and and I think that's also part of the generational differences. You know, I might see something once that I think, oh my gosh, what is this? And then talk with the young curatorial assistant and think, okay, there are different codes, so I have to do more reading. Mm. <laughs> you know, so it's. You know, maybe I'm like turned off at, the, at once, but if I go back, and I think that's like good poetry, we're going to be stumped, <laughs> and then you go back. Good analogy, essentially. I want to ask one other question that's perplexing me. At one time, many, many years ago, I was on the uh, board of trustees of the Powerhouse Museum, and that's a museum of design and technology. It's a very odd institution in Sydney, as most of us would know. But one of the, <laughs> the things that we collected then, uh, and still do, is ephemera. You know, little people's bus tickets uh, through the ages. The oddest kind of things that you can think of, or, or a collection of buttons, or a collection of, well, perhaps more obviously a collection of Japanese cones, but that's much more understandable. But the ephemera were really things that, you know, people would normally throw away, train tickets, bus tickets, and uh, often they were collected by a collector, donated to the museum. You know, someone had made the effort over years and years to uh, make this 
collection of really very everyday sort of uh, not so interesting uh, objects. But then when you saw it as a whole, it was quite interesting really. Bus tickets, say, from 1840, I don't know, whenever buses started to know. <laughs> but, um, would you, I mean, do other museums apart from the powerhouse, and I can't ask you this, but maybe you, Ross, do that kind of, uh, you know, collection of the peripheral material? Yeah, I, I don't uh, look, know that the Art Gallery of New South Wales does it. Yeah, I think it's a good question. I, I, mm. Someone in the audience may um, know more than this than but I there, do. But there are but, historical museums. Sorry? Oh. The Edo Museum. Which one? Edo Museum. In, in Tokyo. In Australia. Oh, Australia. Yeah, Australia. I'm saying in Australia. Oh, I know, elsewhere. Yeah. But in Australia. societies like New York has the New York um, the city of the Museum of New York mm -hmm. so then maybe the bus tickets would go there they or there's a transit there. museum ah, or there's the, more specialized museum. the New York yeah. Historical Society or remember we haven't got the population to have this division of museum in such detail so in a way the powerhouse became a sort of collect all, mm -hmm, all, mm -hmm. all that stuff. Here's a question. In a kind of sporadic way, the um, regional historic museum. That's true, museum as well. Do that. Kinds of things. So but I don't know how patterned it is. Well, I, I think it's less structured than we would like because it often depends on a particular person who gives something, mm -hmm. you know. And the space they have to store it. Yeah. yeah. And the place. And they're generally run by volunteers. Yeah. So yeah. It's, yeah. it's a bit patchy, I think. Mm -hmm. Should we wrap up now, guys, unless there's an urgent need? I think that was a good wrap-up. <laughs> but uh, listen, before we do, I did want to pay tribute to Alexi Kanzapas. Yes. Uh, because it is through Alexi and Gertrude Street that Barbara is here. And uh, we have a very informal, but I must say, a very nurturing relationship between uh, Scaff and um, Gertrude Street. We've got our residency cottage here, which Barbara's staying in at the moment across the road. And she's not the first to have stayed here uh, from Gertrude Street. So I want uh, us to thank uh, Barbara and Ross, and also Alexi for bringing uh, Barbara to uh, Australia, and of course Ross for doing such a fabulous job in engaging us in Barbara's world.